This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.christchurchsouthphilly.org. If you have your Bibles with you, please open in them to the book of Judges, the book of Judges. If you do not have a Bible, we'd love to be able to give one to you. You can shoot your hand up in the air. We'd be happy to get that into your hand. We're going to be in Judges chapter 10 this morning. Uh, If you're new with us, we started a series in Judges last fall, and then we took a break for the holidays. I'm looking forward to getting back into that series this morning. This is typically what we do here at Christ Church. We pick one book of the Bible, and we make our way through it systematically. And Judges chapter 10 is a great place to jump back into this series because it really shows us the central theme of what Judges is all about. Judges is about this cycle that just keeps on repeating. The cycle is that God's people are living in a time of prosperity in which they forget the God that brought them there. And so they start to chase after and worship other gods. Their worship of other gods leads them to get into some trouble, to some problems, and so when they're in problems, they turn to God and say, help me. God helps them. They again come to a place of prosperity in which they then forget God, and the cycle repeats. We see that cycle again happening here in Judges chapter 10. And so really the, the, whole, the whole point of this book is as it talks about, you know, judges, you know, it, it's not speaking about judges as in, you know, wear a black gown and bang a gavel. It's speaking about these deliverers that God would send who would, you know, help break these cycles for these people. When they were oppressed, God would raise up a judge and the judge would lead them out of that time. And yet every time that that judge comes, the freedom that they experience doesn't last. And in fact, what we're really going to see next week is the judges themselves become increasingly corrupt, just like the people that they were trying to save. And so really what the point of judges is all about is that if we want to see cycles broken in our lives, if there are things in us that we want to see changed about us, then we need a better judge. We need a better deliverer. We need a better rescuer. We need a better savior. We need Jesus. That's really what the whole book of Judges is pointing us to. It is pointing us to our need for the greatest judge, the greatest Savior, Jesus Christ. And so if you're anything like me, and there are things in your life that you want to see changed this coming year, if you're anything like me, and this is a year where you want to grow in experiencing more of God, which is really our whole theme for this year. That's what we've titled this year. This year being 2024 may be a year where we are hungry for more, where we're hungry for more. If that's what you want then the book of Judges has something very powerful to say to us that we need to hear. So let's turn our attention to God's word and hear to God speak to us in Judges chapter 10. I'm going to read from verse 1 down through verse 16. After Abimelech there arose to save Israel, Tola the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he lived at Shemer in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shemar. After him rose Jer, the Gidelite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called havath Jer to this day, which is in the land of Gilead. And Jer died and was buried in Cameon. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. They forsook the Lord and did not serve him. 
So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Malachites and the Malonites who oppressed you. And you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Let's bow our heads and pray that God would speak to us through the preaching of his word. I want to encourage you to have a personal time of prayer between you and God. Just asking him to talk to you and speak to you through what you're about to hear. Now, if you'd be so kind, please pray also for me, because I need help. So pray that I'd be strengthened by the Lord to speak in a way that would be beneficial to you. God, thank you that you are the one true God. Part of you being the one true God is that you are a God who speaks. And Lord, you are speaking to us through the sacred history that you inspired to occur and you inspired to be written down and you preserved throughout the ages so that we could hear from you from this part of your word today. And so as we open up today what you have to say in Judges chapter 10, I pray that you would give us open hearts to receive what you want to say to each one of us. God, we need your help. And the good news is that you want to help. And so, Lord, I pray you would meet each one of us exactly where we are. But, Lord, I also pray that you would help us to not stay as we are. Lord, would you change us and grow us more and more into the people you've created us to be in Jesus so that your name might be more and more enjoyed and glorified in our lives. I pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. So this chapter, it starts out well enough. There are these two judges that were leading Israel once again into times of prosperity. There's Tola, who led Israel for 23 years, followed by Jair, who led Israel for 22 years. So that's 45 years total of rest and peace and prosperity. While everything on the surface appeared to be fine, there were some weeds growing, if you will, underneath the surface that would soon spring up. And choke out the life that these people 
were enjoying. The weeds that were going unaddressed that were then going to sprout in verse 6 are the weeds of idolatry that had not been addressed in their hearts. And back in chapters 8 and 9, we saw that Israel had started worshiping false gods. One of their judges, Gideon, had actually created a false god, starting the cycle of how these judges are actually not that great. He had created a false god, and he had told the Israelites to worship that god. And they did. And so what we see here is even though they were going through a time of 45 years of peace and prosperity, they weren't addressing the false worship that was existing in their midst. And so that false worship then began to grow even more as we come to chapter 10. Now, as we read this, sitting here in Philadelphia in the year 2024, which I cannot believe that it's the year 2024, but here we are. As we sit here reading this, I think reading about idolatry can honestly seem fairly removed from our lives. I mean, what do we know about Baal? What do we know about Ashtoreth? Uh, I don't think many of us walked to church here and saw temples to these gods on our way. Um, it can seem somewhat, you know, removed from our lives to talk about this idea of idolatry. And yet, actually, I think what this text wants to show us today is that idolatry has everything to do with us. I think this text shows us four things about idolatry. I'm going to repeat these as we go, but just so you know where we're going, we're going to see how idolatry is pervasive. Idolatry is pervasive. Second, idolatry is expansive. Third, idolatry is oppressive. And then fourth, idolatry is disruptive. And we need to see these things about idolatry so that we can flee the dangers of idolatry in our lives. But not just so that we can flee the dangers of idolatry. No, really what God wants to do is not just expose what our idols are. God wants to lead us deeper into the worship of who he is. And so this is not just about fleeing the dangers of idolatry. This is about learning to deepen our delight in God. God doesn't want to just turn us from things that harm us. He wants to turn us to himself. And so let's consider today what it means to flee idolatry and experience God. That's why I've titled this morning's sermon, Fleeing Idolatry, Experiencing God. First, let's consider how idolatry, it is pervasive. Notice that as these Israelites are worshiping these false idols, no one is making them do that. There's no mention here of them being strong-armed into anything. No, each of these gods represented something that they freely chose to worship. Why are they worshiping these things? Why are they chasing after these gods? Well, consider what these gods represented. For example, the god Baal was the god of the storm. The goddess Astreth was the goddess of the harvest. If you know anything about the topography of Israel, it is a land that has no natural water sources coming into it. And so in order for it to be a place of harvest, it needs rains to fall down upon it. And so when a rain was not coming, when the Israelites thought it should, when the rains weren't coming as much as they thought it should, can you see how it might be tempted for them to go and worship the rain god and the harvest god? See, see when they started worshiping these false gods, it wasn't because they thought these gods were like, cool. It wasn't like, oh man, you know, these, these, these bales, they got a lot of things going on. I, I got nothing else to do on a Saturday. Let's just go hang out in their temple. That, that's not what's happening here. No, the reason they're going after these false gods is because of what these false gods offered to them. Here's how you can find safety. Here's how you can find security. Here's how you can find satisfaction. Here's how you can be in control. And so while the idols they would worship would change... 
they go from one to another. What was driving them to that worship was always the same. It was their own internal desires. Their idolatry came from their hearts. And so for us, while we don't have many temples to Baal here in Philadelphia, I think that heart of idolatry can be present in us as well. If idolatry is chasing after things that we think provide us security, oh, can't we have all kinds of those things in our lives? I think the New City Catechism has a helpful definition of idolatry as it says this, idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness, significance, and security. That's what was driving these Israelites to pursue all these foreign gods. These foreign gods offered to them hope and happiness, significance, and security. Or to put it even more succinctly, to quote Pastor Tony Evans, an idol is any noun. It's been a while since English class, a noun is a person, place, or thing. So an idol is any person, place, or thing that you look to as your source to meet your needs. I'd add nuance to say your perceived needs. Idolatry is a noun. It is any person, place, or thing that you look to as your source. This will be what finally gives me what I perceive to be what I truly need. And so really, an idol can be anything. For these people, it took the form of these gods. For us, it could be other people's praise. If people think well of me, then that's how I'll be satisfied in life. And so I'm just going to live to please others and chase their approval and their affirmation. Or it could be money. If I just make enough money, then I'll finally feel accomplished and satisfied and I'll feel happy in life. I think Pastor Louis Gigolo said it well as he said this, if we follow the trail of our time, our affections, our energy, our money, and allegiance, at the end of that trail we'll find a throne. And on that throne is what we worship. See, what we worship is shown through what we value. It's where we give our affections. It's where we spend our time and our energy. It's what we spend our money on. It's where we feel our allegiance. Friends, follow those things that will lead you to a trail, to a throne, and on that throne is showing you what you really value. On that throne is showing you what you really worship. What do you find yourself thinking about most often? What do you most fear losing? What is it that can make you the most angry? How we answer those questions will show us what we value. And what we value is what we worship. What are the things you go to for your comfort? For your sense of refuge. Where we turn to for comfort and refuge can reveal the idols that we think will make us happy and whole. For some, that refuge can be in the door of your fridge. It could be engagement on social media. It could be drinking or shopping 
or working out or watching movies or playing music or going on vacations or traveling the world. And it's not that any of those things are necessarily bad in and of themselves, but idolatry is not necessarily doing bad things. It's just taking what might even be a good thing, but viewing it as something that is absolutely necessary and that we have to have. In other words, idolatry is whatever is at the center of our lives and is controlling us and shaping the decisions that we make. Or as a preacher named Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, an idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. It is an easy thing to say that God is first in our lives. I would actually argue most people say that. These people here in Israel, it never says that they stopped like saying that they were followers of Yahweh. You know, maybe even they would say, oh yeah, Yahweh's number one. We got all those other gods, but he's still number one. But who or what we're truly living for is not revealed by what we say, it's revealed by the choices we make. Who or what we are living for is not revealed by what we say, it's revealed by the choices we make. And they were making choices that showed that God, regardless of what they might have said, where God was not what was central in their lives. They might have praised him with their lips, but their hearts were oh so far from him. And how often that can be true for us as well. Friends, idolatry is not just an ancient problem. It is a human problem. It is pervasive in each of us as we can so often be tempted to let other things drive our choices besides the Lord. As we can allow other things or other people occupy the place that's meant to be occupied by God alone. Idolatry is pervasive. It's also expansive. Idolatry is expansive. There's something that is unique about this list of gods being mentioned here in Judges chapter 10. Judges has talked about each of these gods before. What's unique is that this is the first time they're all being listed together. So far in this book, the pattern has been that Israel would turn to one set of gods at a time. And so they'd worship, for example, for a time, the gods of the Sidon. Or they'd worship for a time the gods of the Amalekites. But this is the first time that they're worshiping all these gods at the same time. And so back in chapter 2, it was just Baal. Now here as we get to chapter 10, that one has grown to seven. And that number seven is significant. Let me read a quote from commentator Kevin Lawson to help us see why. He writes this in his commentary on Judges. In ancient Israel, numbers were symbolic. And the number seven was symbolic of completion. And so by identifying seven sets of deities, the text is conveying that the Israelites went completely after other deities. See, we're saying these Israelites, they aren't just playing around with one God anymore. No, now they are completely given over because idolatry never stays contained into one place in our lives. It's expansive. And so if left unaddressed, it will just keep growing and growing and taking up more and more space in our hearts and our minds and driving even more and more of our choices. And so for me, I think about when I graduated from college, I got my first job in corporate sales. My goal was to work at that job for several years to save as much money as I could so that I could go to seminary because ultimately being a pastor was my end goal. And yet as I got into that job and I realized, okay, I need to save as much money as possible, money became my God, and so I started to overwork. I justified it by saying, hey, I need to save money for a good cause, right? The ends justify the means, not so much. 
Uh, and so I set some income goals, and when I, by the grace of God, hit those income goals, here's what I found. Oh, it's great to make this much money. Now I want to make even more money. <laughs> See, that's the crazy thing about sales. You actually set your own salary. Uh, what you put in is often what you get out. And so I was like, hey, if I can do this by doing this much work, well, guess what? If I do this much more work, I'll make this much more. And so what I thought would satisfy me, what I thought, hey, once I save this much amount, then I'll be good and I'll be able to pull back from life. I'll be able to throttle things down a little bit. What I found out is once I got there, I just felt like I needed to keep doing more. And then I got promoted. And when I got promoted, not only was it about achieving a certain income level, but now because of the sales quota that I had to hit, if I wasn't hitting my number, then my whole branch wouldn't be able to hit their number. And so not only was it about trying to make much money for myself, it was also about not letting other people down. And so if I didn't hit my number and if I didn't do well, then other people would lose their respect for me. And so I was not only being driven by the dollar anymore, I was being driven by wanting people's approval. And then when I got people's approval and I thought, okay, this is finally it, when I you know, won various awards and was recognized, then I realized, like, okay, these awards are great, but like, now I got to do it again, and I got to do it even more. Right? And what I found is that my idolatry of chasing money, of chasing approval, of chasing award. Every time I thought, this next idol, this will be it. This will be when I finally feel satisfied. This will be when I can finally kick back and coast and like put the time into the relationships I should put them in, put the time into the, the church the way I should put in, put the time in, most importantly, to the war the way I should put in. Once I finally get here, then I'll be able to do that. And guess what? That day never came. Well, I mean, it did, because that's why I'm here today. But, but, but the point is, it just kept growing and growing. This is what idolatry does. It makes us think that when we achieve this, we'll finally be satisfied, but then when we do achieve that, we find that we're not satisfied, so we just go and we double down on that idol even more. I think Pastor Tim Keller captures this well when he writes, we see our problem not as worshiping an idol, but not worshiping an idol enough. When our idols don't satisfy us, we think the problem, it's not our idolatry, we can think the problem is we just need more idols. We just need a better idol. We just need the next thing. And so we don't think the problem is our idolatry, we think the problem is that we don't have enough idolatry in our lives. And so idolatry, it never stays contained in one place. If left unaddressed, it will just keep taking over more and more and more of us and driving more and more of our decisions. Idolatry is pervasive because it comes from our own hearts. And it is expansive as it wants to take over our lives. And then it becomes oppressive. This pervasive and expansive idolatry, it becomes oppressive. Verse 7 says that because the Israelites worshiping the gods of all these other nations, it says God sold them to those other nations and gave them into their hand. Now we know from the rest of the book that that does not mean that God abandoned his people or gave up on his covenant promises to them. But it does mean that he removed his hand of protection from them. You see, friends, sometimes God's heart of love leads him to letting us find things out the hard way. God is not an enabler. Sometimes the kindest thing he can do is allow us to experience the consequences of our own choices so that we might then see how much we actually do need him. And so in God's mercy... He gave these people over. And as a result, several of these nations whose gods the Israelites had been worshiping, they invade the country, they crush them, and they oppress them for 18 years. Their idolatry led to their slavery. As God gave them up and essentially said, hey, if you're going to turn to things other than me, 
then go find out how good that actually is. Their idolatry led to their slavery as God gave them up to what they wanted in the first place, which was a life independent from him. Romans chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, I think is a fascinating parallel passage that talks about a similar thing. In that passage, the apostle Paul talks about idolatry as he speaks about people who, Romans 1, 23, exchange the glory of God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. They started worshiping idols. And what was the result? Verse 24 goes on to say, therefore God gave them up, gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. That word that's being translated there is lust. It's a Greek word that means an overwhelming drive. An enslaving, uncontrollable desire. To give up means that God sometimes allows the things in which we hope, uh, which we hope in instead of him, sometimes God allows those things to become ruling powers in our lives. Idolatry always leads to slavery. So, for example, when we live for money instead of for God, then God will let money control our lives. It will be what rules and dominates our emotions, our time, and our decisions. If we live for popularity instead of God, then people's opinions of us will be what rule us and drive us and control us. Idols are what we worship, and what we worship is what controls our lives. And how harsh these taskmasters of our idols can become. A year after Michael Jordan was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2009, there was a disturbing article actually written about him uh, by ESPN analyst Wright Thompson. He writes this, speaking about Jordan. He says, his self-esteem has always been, as he says, tied directly to the game. Without it, he feels adrift. Who am I? What am I doing? For the past 10 years, since retiring for the third time, he has been running, moving as fast as he could, creating distractions, distance. In his 2009 Hall of Fame speech, Jordan called the game of basketball his refuge, the place where I've gone when I need to find comfort and peace. Three years later, the restlessness remains. Basketball had become his God, and so when he couldn't do that anymore, when he didn't have it, then all his success and all his fame and all his money couldn't take away his restlessness because he no longer had his God. And I don't read that to us to, us to point a finger at him. I read it to us to hold a mirror up to ourselves. What are the idols in our lives that we can allow to oppress us and shackle us, robbing us of the joy and peace that God wants for us. Idolatry always leads to savory. It, it, it oppresses us because it never gives us the joy that we think worshiping the idol would provide. And so we're just shackled to chasing more and more and more of it. Idolatry is pervasive, it is expansive, it is oppressive, and worst of all, idolatry is disruptive. The Israelites turn to God in their oppression. They cry out for his help, only to find that their relationship with God had become disrupted. When the Israelites cry out to God for help in verse 10, God's first answer is not to give them any help. 
This is not because God is being mean or harsh or vindictive. No, look at their prayer in verse 10. Look at what they do. Actually, more importantly, look at what they don't do. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. They're confessing their sin. They're confessing their idolatry. That is a good thing to do. What are they not doing? They're not giving up any of their idols. They go on to do that in verse 16. But that's not where they start. Where they start is by asking God to work some stuff out for them without any change of, any interest in God changing some things about them. Where they start is wanting relief from what they're experiencing, but not being all too concerned about what got them in that place in the first time. And so in many ways, this is just a transactional prayer. They're just trying to push the right buttons, trying to make the right sacrifices in order to get God to give them what they really wanted. And so actually what's going on here is they're trying to use God just the way they've been trying to use those other idols. They're going after God in an idolatrous way. They're trying to use him to get from him what they really wanted. Listen, whenever we're trying to use God to get something else, whenever we're trying to make deals with God to get something else other than him, what we're revealing is that there's something greater in our hearts than him. That thing we want God to do, if I do this for you, Lord, you need to do this for me, it's that thing that we're truly worshiping, not him. How often we can treat God transactionally instead of relationally. See, relationship with God means wanting nothing from God but himself. Relationship with God is saying, I'm not here for the blessings. I'm here for you. (laughs) Knowing, loving, serving, and worshiping you, that's relationship that God wants us to have with him. But what idolatry does, it disrupts our relationship with God and makes us think about God transactionally instead of relationally. It makes us think about God like an ATM that we can just push the right buttons to get out from him the stuff we want so that we can then pursue the things that we really think we need. And so God says, I'm not cheap like that. You can't treat me like a transaction. If we want to use God, God will never answer those kinds of prayers. So God says, hey, okay, you want to use me? Why don't you go try to use those gods you've been calling out to and see what they can do for you? He points them back to their gods. Not because he wants them to actually worship those gods. Because he wants to expose to them how foolish it was to worship those gods in the first place. He tells them, hey, you think you can get from me, escape from these hard things? You think you can just use me this way? Well, go talk to those gods and see if they can come through for you that way. And he says that so that they would see that idolatry always fails. Our idols hold out to us. Here's how you can have hope and happiness. Here's how you can have significance and security. This is what idolatry holds out to us. It's a promise that always fails. It is fool's gold. It does not give what we think it will. Because no one and nothing will always and can always be there for us 100%. No one and nothing will always or, be the, or can always be there for us 100%. This past July, by the grace of God, my wife and I celebrated 15 years of marriage. And that was a sweet memory, and we're looking forward to hopefully another 50 to come. 
There is no one that I love more, respect more, and cherish more than her. There's no one that I want to love better than how I love her. And yet sometimes I fail to love her in the way that I desire. Sometimes I fail to be the husband that I know I should be and I want to be. And so if I'm ultimately her source of security, then she'll actually always be insecure. And if me being the perfect husband is ultimately the source of my security, then what am I going to do when I blow it? See, one of the dangers of having a disrupted relationship with God is that anything else that you put in the center of your life other than him is inherently unstable. And so therefore, you'll always feel insecure. And so this is really the cycle of idolatry. Why do we go after idols? Because we have insecurity. Our idolatry comes from our insecurity. And so idolatry is insecurity that is searching for hope and happiness, that is searching for meaning and significance. And so in that insecurity, our hearts create these idols. We pursue people or places or things as our ultimate source of security. And that idolatrous drive, it doesn't come from things outside of us, it comes from inside of us. It's pervasive, and then it takes over more and more of our lives. As it takes over more and more of our lives, this idolatry that is pervasive and expansive becomes oppressive because it doesn't lead us to the hope we think it will as we're just slaves chasing more, and eventually it becomes disruptive. In the very relationship that we want to have with God, where we feel close to him, well, friends, it's going to, feel hard to, be, it's going to be hard to feel close to God when you're worshiping other gods. And so I want to suggest this is what is wrong with the world. This is what is wrong with us. It's idolatry. It's the worship of created things more than the creator of all things. This is the cycle that we can get caught in. And so what are we to do? What are we to do? Well, watch what happens in verse 16. It says, they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. The people are finally putting away their idols. So they're turning away from them. Well, why do they turn? What's the difference between verse 10 when they cry out and verse 16 when they put away? It says they turned and served the Lord. The word that's being translated here to serve is not serving in the sense of doing stuff for people. No, it's serving in the sense of worship. See, what changed them? What finally led them to putting away these false idols was that they started worshiping God. See, friends, how God wants to work in our lives is not just by exposing our idolatry, but ultimately what he wants, how he wants to work in our lives is by leading us deeper and deeper into loving and valuing and treasuring him. We flee idolatry by experiencing God. We flee idolatry not just by laying our idols down, but by experiencing more of his presence in our lives, which pushes them out. I think often when we think about idolatry, and I've been in this place, and it's an unhealthy place, we think, if I can just figure out what my idol is, if I can just figure out what's the root cause of the sin, then finding that root will be where I find deliverance. Now listen, it's important to get to the bottom of your heart. Yes, find your idols and confess your idols, absolutely. But friends, your hope for salvation isn't in you finding the root of your heart. The hope of your salvation is that you have a Savior and His name is Jesus. And so how we flee idolatry is not in our own strength just trying to find our idols. No, how we flee idolatry is by pressing into the Lord's strength and saying, Lord, I need to see more of you. We flee idolatry not in our own strength 
but by experiencing the power of God in our lives, which pushes our idols out of our lives. And we can't do that by ourselves. Did, did you notice how, what changed? What changed the Israelites from just wanting to use God in verse 10 to actually turning away from their idols and worshiping Him in verse 16? What happens in between those verses? Verse 11 says, And the Lord said to the people of Israel, let me just pause there. What's one of the things that changed? Here's what changed. God spoke to them. What changed? They heard the voice of God. What changed? Not them in their own strength, but God reaching out in his mercy and love. What changed is that God spoke to them. And then what does he speak to them about? He says, did I not save you from the Egyptians, from the Amorites, from the Ammonites, and from the Philistines? God's speaking to them. And what is he speaking to them about? He's speaking to them about his redemptive love. He doesn't speak to them and begin by scolding them. No, he speaks to them and reminds them of how he loves them. Romans chapter 2 verse 5 says, It is God's kindness to us that is meant to lead us in repentance. It is God's kindness that's meant to lead us to repentance, which means to turn away from our sin. Friends, we are not changed in a lasting way just by being scared of God. Yes, we should feel an appropriate sobriety about our wrongdoing. But ultimately, what will change us in a lasting way is not being scared of God. It's experiencing the love of God. God changes us not by scaring us straight. He doesn't change us by scaring us. He changes us by wooing us. It is seeing his kindness, experiencing his love. That is what leads us to turn from the false idols that we pursue and to turn to him. Now, I think sometimes we can have a hard time seeing God's kindness to us because we just, again, so often think about God transactionally. All right, God, I do this for you, so you owe this to me. I didn't this to you, and so you must be disappointed with me. We think about God transactionally. Friends, it's going to be always hard to relate to someone relationally if you only think about them transactionally. How many of you have a relationship with your payroll company? Now, maybe you work for a payroll company, and so you have a relationship with coworkers. Right? But for those of you, it's like your payroll company, you probably don't even know who they are. Again, unless you do payroll, and that's like part of your job. Well, you probably don't even know who they are. When, when your paycheck shows up in your mail slot or in direct deposit, it's not like you're like, oh, I'm so grateful for this payroll company. You might be grateful for the money. You might be grateful for the job that you have, right? The people value you and pay you for it. But you're not grateful for the people who just execute the transaction. They're just giving you what you earned. And if they withheld it from you, they would actually be stealing, and that'd be, that'd be wrong. And so we don't feel gratitude for people that we just have a transactional relationship with. And so we'll never deeply connect with the love of God if we just think about him transactionally. Friends, if you think God's love is something you can earn, then you will never connect deeply with what God's love actually is. What God is doing is he's reminding the Israelites of what he's done for them. He's reminding them of how they had not earned anything from him. I mean, it saved them from their enemies time and time again. But had they become to be captured by these enemies time and time again? It's the same way they did here. 
by abandoning God. And so they had not earned any kindness from God. They had not earned his redemptive love and his pursuit of him. No, they had spurned him. God did not owe them kindness. If he owed them anything, what he owed them was judgment. What he owed them is what he goes on to say in verse 13. Fine, you're going to reject me? Then have it your way. Go cry out to those false gods. Like, that's where this story could have stopped in verse 13. God turned them over to the false gods they chased. End of story. Game over. That's all their actions earned. That's not all that God gives. No, it says at the end of verse 16. It says, he became impatient over the misery of Israel. What does it mean that God became impatient over their misery? Well, actually, I like how the NIV translate this better. Because I think it's clearer. It says, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. What this is saying is that God is not being impatient with them. He's being impatient with what they're going through. He could not bear to see them in their misery any longer, even though it was a misery brought on by their own making. And so as we're going to see next week, there is this judge that comes and does deliver the people. But for us, we don't even need to get to next week because we know, standing on this side of the cross, that Jesus has come. And he is the final and full expression of God's saving grace. In Jesus, we see how God has been impatient with the mess that we make in our sin. We see in Jesus that God cannot bear us to be in our sin any longer, but he came to make a way for us to be saved. In Jesus, we see that the God of the universe, to whom we owe everything and to whom owes us nothing, this God of the universe, to whom we are nothing but a speck of dust, this infinite, holy, transcendent, majestic God, he looked down from his high, holy throne, and he saw us, rebellious, idolatrous people that we are. He saw us in the messes of our own making, in the misery of our sin, and while he would be totally justified to judge us and turn us over to our sin, instead, he cannot bear to see us in our sin, and so Jesus came and bore our sin for And he hung on that cursed tree where the judgment of God for our sinful idolatry did not fall on us, but fell on him. We deserved. Jesus took. And friends, it is seeing him. It is seeing the beauty of Jesus. It is saturating ourselves over and over and over again in his ravishing display of redemptive love blazing in glory on that old rugged cross. It is experiencing his loving kindness that should lead us to want to say, I don't need or want anything else other than you. Your love is better than anything this life has to offer. And so while I thank you for the good gifts you've given, oh, no gift is worth treating as my God. There's only one God, and it's the giver of the gift. And in fact, the greatest gift he's given is himself. God, Jesus, thank you for how you've given yourself. There is no one and nothing as beautiful as you. You are the sin-taking, death-dying, love-showing God. Oh, friends, it is seeing more and more 
the beauty and magnificence of God's gracious, redemptive kindness to us in Jesus is his kindness that leads us to repentance. It's his kindness that leads us to turn away from our idolatry and turn to worship of him. And so really, here's the big idea that I hope we take home with us this morning. Here's where this text is meant to direct us. We flee the idols that oppress us by experiencing the love of God for us. We flee the idols that oppress us by not becoming fixated on our idolatry, but instead fixing our eyes on Christ. We flee the idols that oppress us by experiencing the love of God for us. Oh, when you taste and see how good he is, that is what ruins our taste for anything else. So as we come to a close, here's my encouragement for application. The Israelites were changed as they experienced God speaking to them about his love. They had forgotten, and so they needed the voice of God to remind them. Friends, I think we have that same need. This love of God that we hear about, we can't just hear about once. We need spoken into our heart the truth of it again and again and again. And so my encouragement to us about how to apply this text is to continually cultivate in our lives a sensitivity to God's voice. And that's not meant to be some mystical, magical thing. No, how do we hear God's voice? Friends, this is the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that God breathed these words out. To open the Bible is to feel the breath of God come upon your face. How do we hear God's voice? Come to his word. Which is why Jesus said that this word is meant to be our daily bread. We need God's word in our lives each and every day. Because each and every day we wake up, there are idols waiting for us that want to lead us down a dark and deadly path. And they're not even waiting for us outside our home. They're waiting for us before we get out of bed because they're waiting for us in our own hearts. And so what we need is we need to be daily in the presence of God, hearing him speak to us through his word. And how we hear from God is, is by opening these words. And as we talked about last week, our lives with the Lord are spiritual, which means we can't just pursue them in ways that are intellectual. And so we need to read this word, and we read it intellectually, absolutely. We try to understand what it's saying, we grapple with it, yes. But we need to read it spiritually. We need to pray and cry out for the Spirit of God who inspired these words to be written, for the Spirit of God to come, and these words that are inspired to take them and illuminate them to our hearts. We need the Spirit of God to come into our lives in more and more ways and to turn on the lights that we might see the beauty of Jesus in these pages. And so for this year, I want to encourage us to pursue two things that I think will help us hear God's voice and experience his love in even deeper ways. I want us to consider pursuing availability and humility. Availability and humility. By availability, I mean taking time on a daily basis to be quiet, still, and available for the Lord to speak to you. 
Friends, it takes time to read God's word in a way that is thoughtful. It takes time and being undistracted to read God's word in a way where you can actually hear his voice. So my encouragement to you is to fight business in your life. Ruthlessly eliminate anything that puts you in a hurry. Because we need availability in our lives in order for God to speak to us. Now, if you're a parent, as soon as I hear ruthlessly eliminate the things that put you in a hurry, I'm like, well, it's my kids who often make me so busy. So, like, pretty sure I can't ruthlessly eliminate them. Uh, nor do I want to. My children are a blessing. Um, so here's what I want to encourage you. If you're a, child, a parent of young children, partner with your spouse for the purpose of fighting for this availability. Partner with your spouse for the purpose of fighting for this availability. Think about how your lives are structured and what you need to take down and what you need to restructure in order to give each other this kind of space. Maybe one of you takes the kids one morning and someone else takes the kids another morning. Maybe it's you are holding yourselves accountable to go to bed earlier so that you can wake up earlier before the kids get up and have that time with God. I'm not sure what it is, but partner with your spouse and fight together for this availability before the Lord. And if you're here and you have a spouse who's not a believer, and so they're not exactly going to value that availability for you, or if you're here and you're a single parent, man, this is one of the ways that I think the community of a church is meant to be a blessing to you. We're meeting as community groups this week. What a great thing to talk about with your community group. I'd love to find more ways to be with God, and it's really hard in my busy life. Allow your community group to think about what they could do to serve you and help you and give you time availability. This is the way the church can be the church, by supporting one another. Pursue availability. And second, pursue humility. Pursue humility. Friends, we need the Spirit's power in order to hear God's voice. We need His Spirit to illuminate the words that He inspired. And so don't just try harder to read God's word more. No, start by praying and crying out in your desperate need, God, I need your help. I need your help to go to bed earlier so I can get up earlier. I need your help to sit down and be undistracted. I need your help as I read these words to actually hear what you're trying to say. In your humility, admit your need for the Lord. Friends, this world is so full of idols that want to oppress us and disrupt our relationship with God. But we flee idolatry. We flee the idols that oppress us by experiencing the love of God for us. And how God helps us do that is through his word and by the power of his spirit. So may this be a year where we in increasing ways pursue availability and humility so we might feel the breath of God breathing upon his face. And his love might be awakened more and more in our hearts so that his presence in us drives these idols far away from us. Let's bow our heads in a word.